This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. Our Voices is a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Association's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Have you ever been told that you are not diverse enough? What in the world is that? Holly Amidi, coded by the spelling of her name, H-A-L-L-E-H, and who inherited Persian beauty from her Iranian parents, will tell us about being judged on her diversity and somehow coming up short, twice. Holly is a partner at Hogan Omidi, a respected family law practitioner and a member of the Executive Council of the Family Law Section of the CBA. Listen in as she discusses her path to leadership that includes a clerkship that led to a lifelong mentor, her service to the CBA, and learning to focus on her own self-care as part of her story. Hi, and welcome to Our Voices. Uh, I'm Linda Moss. I'm a family law attorney with Sutter Smith and Schallenberger, and I'm here with my co-host, Bonnie Schreiner. Hi, I'm Bonnie Schreiner. I'm a lawyer, an arbitrator, a counselor, and a freelance writer. We're here with Holly Omidi, uh, with Hogan Omidi. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're so happy to have you here. As you know, the structure of Our Voices is basically all about you. So we want to know who, who were you, who are you, and who are you going to be? So let's start with who were you? What were you like as a child? Oh, boy. Okay. So um, I grew up here in Colorado. I grew up in the northern suburbs in Westminster. And um, pretty kind of average, normal, day-to-day upbringing. Um, I have two wonderful parents who still live in that area. And an older brother. He's about five years older than me. And he's still here local, too. And we're a really kind of tight-knit bunch, the four of us, and we have always been that way and have remained that way. So I'm really, really grateful and fortunate because a lot of folks don't have that upbringing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in the I grew up in the burbs in Westminster, and so there weren't a lot of other kids that really looked like me when I was growing mm-hmm. up, right? So. Um, you know, maybe there was um, some diversity when I was going to school, um, but I was always the only Persian kid. Mm. And um, a lot of people don't even know what that means. Like, where Persia? Where is that? <laughs> what is that? Um, so my my parents were both born and raised in Iran. Mm. They immigrated to the to the U.S. in the late seventies, so they have been here since. But I always recall as a kid people and my teachers not really knowing what my bath background or ethnicity was and getting a lot of those questions of what are you where are you from mm-hmm. and um you know so I wouldn't I would always say Persian and then I'd have to explain a little bit more mm-hmm. because you know that's not so widely known or I mean to my eight-year-old classmates they had no idea what I was talking about so you know it was and I thought it was cool it was cool to be the only Persian kid I actually enjoyed it it was it was like it was my thing and it was it was cool to to be the only one I think it wasn't until I went to middle school where there was one other Persian kid in my class a boy and you know but before that it was just me and so it was it was kind of cool to be the only one 
but yeah, I mean, um, you know, grew, grew up in the burbs and kind of went through that whole thing and went to high school in, in Westminster at, at North Glen, um, specifically. And, you know, there it's still, I, I think for a long time, it still was cool to be the only Persian kid. And I never really felt like I wasn't, you know, I, that I didn't fit in or that mm-hmm. I wasn't involved. And I, I, I felt like I was treated sort of the same as everyone else. And so, you know, um, it was interesting. I was listening to a couple of other of these um, Our Voices podcasts um, just in the last couple of weeks. And, and some other folks have had, you know, quite different high school or, you know, any mm-hmm. K through 12 experiences. But I was fortunate that until, you know, kind of towards the end of high school, it, it was good. Um, and I never really had an experience where I felt like the outsider. Mm-hmm. So you felt like you were still able to make friends and people were kind of interacting with you the same way as anyone else. Yeah, I felt like I fit in just fine. You know, I had I, I was a really good student and I was um, pretty active on my dance team and, and had a lot of friends, you know, both. What kind of dance? Um, well, I did. I did for the high school. I did jazz and palms. And then I've also done ballet and tap and those types of things over the years. So that was, you know, that was fun too. when I had friends in kind of both the academic context and then in my like little dance world as well, too. So it was it was fun. And I, you know, I had two really great parents that I think were always so supportive of me that made these, you know, made, made life a little bit easier you know, we always we always joke in our in our Persian culture that when you grow up, if you're successful, you're either a doctor, lawyer, or an engineer. Mm. And we always <laughs> we always laugh about it, and it's a joke. Like if I made this joke with any other Persian person, they totally understand. They're like, yeah, you know, my mom wanted me to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. I like that engineer fits in there. Yeah, though. and it's funny actually. The vast majority of folks in my family are engineers. My dad's an engineer. Uh. My brother's an engineer. And so I'm I'm actually the only lawyer. Um, so it's funny, but I never felt that like extreme sense of pressure from my parents to necessarily fit into one of those molds. It was just more of, look, we value higher education. We value you to, you know, be dedicated to that and to have this, a career path and a future and and to do well in school. And, you know, I remember my parents always coming to my parent teacher conferences and, if God forbid I had an A minus in something, you know, we they would want to know what can we do to improve it and and all that kind of stuff. And and it wasn't like I was in trouble or reprimanded or anything, but they were just so supportive of, okay, do we need to buy like some workbooks for, you know, for calculus or whatever the class was to get this from a 90 to a 95? And so, you know, so the old saying doctor, lawyer, engineer, you know, it it does apply in some senses. <laughs> I want to pause there because I think that's really interesting what you just said that they asked, what should we be doing differently? Not what should she be doing differently, but that they thought that they had an active role in trying to help you to be better. Mm -hmm. How did they manifest that with you? Yeah. And I think that's it. And it really was, it went over really well with me, right? For them to take that type of approach so that we were sort of in this collaboratively together of what can they do and what can I do to do that? As opposed to like, you need to study harder to get a 95 as opposed to a 90. It wasn't anything like that. And and now as an adult, I can appreciate that more. Now that I have my own child, I can appreciate that more 
back then I was just like, you know, leave me alone. This A minus is fine. Yeah. <laughs> Buzz off. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, I, I, I can appreciate it now as an adult far more than I could back then. Where, where did your mom fit into this? You've talked about your dad and your brother, but mm-hmm. I don't know if your mom's sure. a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. She's none of those, actually. She, um, she has a background and a degree in nutrition. And so she worked for a little while um, when we were younger and then transitioned, and she was a stay-at-home parent. And so she, she did it all. She shuttled us to our activities and various events, and, and that is a big, important job in and of itself. So it's interesting, right? Because I just talked about that doctor, lawyer, engineer, but she was a stay-at-home mom and she excelled at it. And that I can appreciate so much more now as a parent as well, too. Did your home, in your home, did you speak Farsi? Yeah. So I grew up, so I'm, I'm fully bilingual and my first language really was Farsi. And it wasn't really until I began preschool that I would even was really introduced to a whole lot of English. You know, my parents would primarily speak Farsi to me at home. And then when I went to school, I just kind of picked up English um, with other kids there. And that's really probably the easiest way to learn because it was just so organic for me. And that's another thing that I'm so appreciative of now because I can't imagine now as an adult going back and trying to learn a foreign language. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's not easy. Um, yeah. It was just so, so organic to do it that way and that was another kind of cool thing I remember you know growing up and being at a sleepover or something and then calling my parents and I could I could switch to another language and no one had any idea what I was talking about so it was just kind of nice to have that you know tool in your back pocket your name is Holly Mm -hmm. Omidi H a l l e h, right? Omidi, mm-hmm. and so, and you and I have talked about this briefly, mm-hmm. but you were coded by your name um, all along as um, not being American name. Sure. I know not Susan. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> and, and, you know, and this always came up for me. It was like, you know, the first day of class where the teacher's doing role and you see the mm. teacher pause mm-hmm. and I'm like, yeah, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> Raise my hand. I, I know. I know where you're stuck. That's me. Um, you know, my my name in Farsi is really pronounced Hale. And that is really I've found to be hard for folks to pronounce. And so when I started going to school, sort of just morphed and evolved to Holly, like H-O-L-L-Y, Holly. And that's what I've gone by since. Um, And it just worked out and it was easier. But, you know, my parents still call me, but, you know, pronounce my name the way it really should be pronounced. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't mind it. I think it's it's fine either way for me. But you're right, Bonnie, that that I think was really kind of a tip off for folks. That's really interesting because looking at your name on paper and as someone who who isn't hasn't been terribly familiar with you. Um, have you ever, I mean, for me looking at your name, I wouldn't have thought Holly and I had to be told by other people that it was pronounced that way. Have you ever thought about trying to like switch back to the proper pronunciation? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have. And I feel like, you know, so many people now know me as Holly. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, well, do I stick with it? Do I go back? (laughs) I, you know, and it doesn't really bother me one way or another, um, I've, I've had folks say that to me, like, well, then why don't you just go back to the way that's really supposed to be pronounced? Why, you know, if they can't pronounce it correctly, show them how to do that. And I think maybe it was just harder for me as a kid and, you know, as a student going through school that people just couldn't do it. And I just gave up and I said, forget mm-hmm. it. But yeah, I mean, I, I've certainly thought about that. I think now it's it's so much easier to go with what everyone knows me as. But 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it's a possibility at some point. Yeah. When when you were in high school, close to the end of high school, in your last year or something like that, you had mentioned something to me earlier about um, having a, a bit of a diversity issue. Can you tell this group what what that was? Yeah. Um, you know, as I started off, it was, you know, I was pretty much the only one, and it was always such a cool thing for me mm-hmm. to be so unique. And then towards the end of high school, I had an experience where it was not so cool anymore. Um, I was, you know, maybe number three or four in my class, so did pretty well academically, was very involved in a whole bunch of things, and was overall a, a good kid, a good student. And so when I was applying to college, I also was applying to a variety of different scholarship opportunities, merit-based scholarships. And I remember there was one that was based on grades, extracurricular involvement, and coming from a diverse background. And I thought to myself, okay, I think I, I, think I <laughs> hit you. all, I think I check, 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 hit these boxes, but let's give it a whirl. So I applied and I went through this application process and it was, you know, it was a pretty sizable scholarship. And I was really excited for the opportunity to be able to do this. Um, and I remember I, I, I was turned down for the scholarship and one of my favorite teachers who I really, really liked and was really close with came to me and she's like, look, here's the feedback that we got is that you're not really diverse enough to get the scholarship. And so unfortunately, you didn't get it for that reason. And I remember just being like, OK, you know, a little disappointed and just sort of moved on. But then, you know, later on thinking about, well, what did that mean? Why mm-hmm. Why wasn't I diverse enough? I mean, mm-hmm. um, there's like only one of me here. So how <laughs> do I not fit that category? You know, and is it just that I have to check one of the main boxes on a questionnaire, you know, that's, you know, say Hispanic or Asian, something like that, that I maybe I can't check those boxes, but still I can't. I, I really can't check any of the regular boxes either. And one would think that not checking any of the regular boxes would make you more diverse. You would think, but, you know, 18-year-old me said, oh boy, all right, well, that sucks and I'm just going to move on. But it's interesting. I think uh, now with the bar doing so many of these EDI type of initiatives is more that I've started thinking about these things that have happened over the years. You know, and there's been a couple instances. I'm not going to say, oh my gosh, I've had this terrible upbringing and I've been, you know, I've been rejected for X, Y, and Z because of my background. Because really overall, I've been quite fortunate and I haven't had to deal with really, really awful things. But now with with these initiatives and when you go to CLEs and lunches and things like that, you start thinking about, well, you know, some of these were a little applicable to me. That you, the slights did occur and, and weren't necessarily either recognized or, but were felt in the heart. Yeah, absolutely. Did that teacher go any further with you or not? No. And, you know, I, I really respected her and really liked her. And so it was, it's tough to get that from her. And, you know, she ultimately didn't make that decision. It was a committee of folks that were deciding about that scholarship. So, um, you know, and I probably should have, in retrospect, asked some more questions. But it was one of those they just were a little shocked and then you just kind of moved on. Did you feel that she bought into their reaction? A little bit in some ways, you know. And and I think the other, there was one other thing that she shared that I remember thinking back on later on. She said, well, you know, 
also you're going to be able to go to college anyways you know your your family can likely afford it or you can get out you can take loans and so you're going to be okay and you know some of the other folks that applied um you know maybe have a will have a more difficult time of going to college and so it is what it is but you know and, and there were plenty of those needs-based scholarships and I wouldn't qualify for those, so I didn't put my name in the hat for those purposely, but this was a merit-based scholarship, so it was, a, it was a different discussion. So did that affect your mindset about yourself towards the end of high school going into college? I mean, a little bit. It was, it was that point when I started thinking, well, gosh, you know, maybe being the only one doesn't, isn't as great as I thought it would be, and maybe this is going to cause me to have some more hurdles that I have to go through as, as I go on through my academic or professional career. When there's boxes to be checked about ethnicity mm-hmm. or, or race, um, how did you handle that at that point or, and now? I check other and then I fill in Persian. Sometimes there's some that say Middle Eastern on some form. Mm-hmm. So if there is, I'll check that. Mm-hmm. But I think there's this debate kind of within the Persian community of do we check Caucasian? Because I think um, many folks believe that that also applies to us, too. Um, and that's always one of the options. But I don't know that that necessarily fits really kind of with my identity. So I just write it in. There's some notion of assimilation. Yeah. That people, um, some people value it uh, for whatever reason mm-hmm. uh, versus their own identity, and it sounds as though you prefer your own identity. I would, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that you are diverse enough. I sure think so. I mean, there's been instances where I haven't been, but it hasn't really changed my own mind. When you what, what, what led you then to college, and, and what did you do there? So I went to CU Boulder, um, so I moved all of like 15 minutes away from home, <laughs> really far, really branched out. Mm-hmm. And um, I you know, I went to school at CU. I got a degree in political science, which was fun, but not the most you know employable type of degree. So, and I knew from before that that I wanted to go to law school. I think I probably would say from like my middle school years, I knew I wanted to go to law school. I enjoyed arguing and debating with friends, family, whoever would take me up on it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I realized, well, I'm not going to have a job with this political science degree. And keep in mind that this is in 2008. So I really wasn't going to have a job with a political science degree. So <laughs> it was time to move on to law school. Um, I, I, I finished college in three years, which was probably my biggest regret why finish college earlier at that time it seemed great Mm. like oh my gosh i'm saving this whole year of tuition and i'm being so smart and yeah if i could go back i would totally change that (laughs) yeah so law school was an experience for you were you the only persian I was, yes. Um, and so I went to law school at CU Boulder, too, and I went straight mm-hmm. through. So I started law school pretty young. I was oh, 21. So you, yeah. yeah. Three was, years of college and then law school. Yeah, I was kind of this baby that was thrown into it. Oh, um, you know, and, and, and it's so funny. People have so many mixed reviews of law school, right? I mean, there's people that loved it, hated it, somewhere in between. I think I would probably put myself somewhere in between. It, it was just an adjustment because – for so long in my, you know, my academic life, I didn't have to try that hard. 
um, you know, getting A's and things were not that difficult, especially through, you know, high school and, and even college. It really wasn't that hard to do that. And then all of a sudden I came to law school with 180 other people at CU that were also the smartest person in their class. Mm -hmm. So that was a bit of an eye-opening experience, especially mm -hmm. after the first you know, semester of law school that, gosh, maybe I need to study harder. Maybe I need to find a different approach because mm -hmm. everyone is operating off you know, that same mentality. As yeah. the, competition, uh, the competition ratchets up. It sure does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like <laughs> exponentially. How long did it take you to feel like you were comfortable in law school? I would say not till like the completion of my 2L first semester. I think that 1L year is just such an adjustment. Everything's right? Yeah. Everything's so different, you know, just everything being graded on that one test. Um, and it was just so different, a whole different level of pressure. And I think it wasn't really until, you know, that end of the first semester of 2L, 2L year where I really felt like I've got a routine, I've got a groove down, this is what works for me, this is what doesn't, and I'll just, you know, do it that way. Did you have to work? Um, well, CU, when I was going there, you weren't allowed to work until after the end of your 1L year, mm -hmm. which was a little odd for me because ever since I was 16, I've always had a part-time job. Mm -hmm. And so it was really hard to say, my gosh, like, how am I going to pay for things? You know, what am I, I have right? no income. I have, and you know, so, but it made sense to really, you know, devote that first, at least the first two semesters to academics. But yeah, starting that first summer, I did, um, I did work. Um, I actually worked for, um, Judge Lucero, who's the presiding disciplinary judge of the Colorado Supreme Court, mm. which was a wonderful experience. He's still one of my you know, closest mentors, wonderful person, and I learned a ton from him. And it's interesting how I got that position because I this was another time when I was rejected from a position, you know, sort of like that scholarship example that I really had my heart set on. So CU and DU have this um, pledge to diversity program. And so um, you know, you can start applying for it after your first semester of your 1L year um, to get a position, um, pretty high paying position for a, for a law student at one of the big 17th Street firms. And so, you know, most everyone with, from a diverse background was interested in doing it. And it was kind of your shoe in to have this great, you know, pretty high paying, great job um, for that 1L summer. And so I applied for it and I started going through the interviews and I distinctly remember having a couple, maybe two or three interviews at various, you know, 17th Street firms where the partners there said to me, well, I don't really understand your background. Like, where are you from? And, and those sorts of things. And so I would explain and, you know, just try to try to educate. And I got a lot of really candid off the cuff answers of, oh, well, aren't you just white? I mean, doesn't that, aren't, I mean, how are you, how are you really diverse? And I was thinking to myself, I mean, this time it was far more clear to me than my 18 year old self that mm, this is inappropriate. And number two, how am I not diverse? Again, who else is interviewing with you, at least from CU, that has a similar background as me? Really not anybody. Did they interview anyone else who spoke Farsi? I doubt it. And so <laughs> I was like, I think I have something to offer. Um, but apparently I didn't. I didn't get I didn't get a I didn't get an opportunity. And I remember being actually really, really upset, really, really crushed because a lot of my other friends and classmates did. And I just was thinking, what is wrong with me? 
that none of these none of these firms would want me. So then I started looking for other positions, and that's how I landed with Judge Lucero, which turned out to be a wonderful experience. But for a while, I was pretty hard on myself about it. When that was a, a diversity program through CU, and f- when the rejection came, um, particularly in the form of so what are you? Mm-hmm. Um, and that you're not, once again, you're not diverse enough. Mm-hmm. Was that ever taken back to the program? No, and it should have, to be quite honest. Um, it was just one of those, like, you know, I was so upset, and I just thought, and I was pretty new there, right? It was after my first semester of law school. I just thought, okay, this isn't good, but I'll just keep pushing forward and, you know, Nothing I can really do differently. It's not I can I can't change who I am. And so I thought, well, I you know, perhaps I don't want to work here at any of these firms anyways, and I'll do something different. But in retrospect, it would have been nice for me to give feedback to the program, but I didn't. When you think of those moments now, and you are a person who is in a position of power and likely to be even more of a leader throughout the Bar Association, how does that affect your observation of people in a similar situation? I think I'm far more aware of it now had those instances not happened to me. So silver lining, I'm glad because I think I'm far more aware, especially now that, you know, I, I co-own a law firm. I'm I'm in a role of hiring individuals. So I'm far more aware of that or when I'm on a bar association committee. Look, not everyone fits this, you know, check these four or five boxes. That's just not the case. And so and, and I think really, I'll be honest, a lot of the initiatives the bar has had with DEI, I think, makes you start thinking about these things and your own experiences and what happened and why and just makes you more observant. Um, and I think this whole idea of being inclusive, you know, it, it helps if you've had, unfortunately, some of these experiences. Not to mm-hmm. say that I wish this on anybody, but it, it's, it's eye-opening. It makes you aware. Yeah, Absolutely. So you mentioned that you now co-own a law firm. So Mm -hmm. in your experience, um, how does it affect your firm to bring in people with diverse backgrounds? I mean, I think it's really important for folks to um, come from diverse backgrounds and be able to offer perhaps a different perspective, different thought on a variety of issues. And so I certainly am looking for that when I'm looking for applicants. Um, And I think it's something that Again, as the bar um, continues with their DEI initiatives and gets the word out there, I would hope that other employers are doing the same too. Um, and, and, and you know, this doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be racial diversity. It needs to be all different yeah. types of diversity, right? Um, but I think, um, I, mean, I think I always have it in the back of my mind from the employer perspective. You clerked for Justice Lucero. Mm-hmm. Did you have any other clerkships or... So I did, did so I did that my 1L summer and then my 2L summer, I actually worked at the firm that I'm at now. And so, mm-hmm. you know, part of me thought, okay, well that experience happened and perhaps it happened for a reason, an unfortunate reason, but it led me to where I ultimately ended up. So I worked at the firm that I am currently at my 2L summer and got a lot of valuable um, experience there. And then from there, um, after law school, they didn't necessarily need a brand new associate at the time that I finished. You know, family law firms are small, right? And so if the demand is there, okay. If it's not there, it's not. So I went on to another family law firm for a little less than a year. 
um, and works there. And, and I think I got some good basic experience there. And from then on, I've been at the firm that I've been at my almost my entirety of my career. And when you first interned, was the firm McGuane Hogan? It was. Yeah. 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 And then that, our firm name changed um, July of 2020. How did you um, get involved with Cobalt? And who have been your mentors throughout this? Yeah, a couple of other attorneys who either had been involved in Cobalt or knew about it. And Bonnie, I think you were actually one of the people that first told me what Cobalt even was. And I I really didn't know what it was. I hadn't heard of it. And so folks like you, um, <laughs> yeah, nudged me along. And then a couple of other, you know, friends and former law school classmates had been in the classes before me. And so, you know, had had coffee with them and they told me about their experiences and it seemed wonderful. Um, and so that really kind of nudged me along. And then, um, you know, I started working on the application process thinking, you know, it's okay if I don't get in. And I know people don't get in on their first try and things like that. And so I set a really low bar yeah. for myself so I wouldn't be um, super upset. And then I worked with um, Judge Lucero for my letter of recommendation and things like that. And so that's that's how I got involved in the process. How did it um, play out for you? It was great, but I was part of the class of 2020. And so the class mm. of 2020 had well, an pesky, interesting experience. pesky thing called COVID that got yeah. in the way. And so I, I don't think we got the full experience, unfortunately. And, you know, it is what it is. We didn't get to do really – we had two things in person in January and February of 2020. And then after that, everything went totally virtual. So that, that changed things a little bit for us. We didn't get to have the fun happy hours and the social get-togethers and things like that to get to know your class. But, I mean, we still had some phenomenal speakers, some phenomenal events that we had that were virtual. And I, I think it was a wonderful, totally helpful experience. So, Yeah, what has Cobalt brought to your life and your professional experience? It's interesting because every single Cobalt um, event that we had each month, you know, had a different theme or a different, um, you know, concept that we're working off of. And so I tell you, honestly, each time that I went to a COBOL event, I took away, you know, a lot of different things that I think are helpful, um, you know, with, with my own practice or my own leadership within my firm or within, you know, the bar. But, um, it, you know, one thing that really stood out to me in, in January when we were at the in-person event, we had um, the speaker come that did a variety of like personality tests and things like that with us. And so that part was really cool to figure out, you know, why do I think of things in this manner versus mm-hmm. this one? And so that has helped me in just in terms of my own leadership within my law firm and perhaps helping to understand, you know, when I work with associates or staff, maybe how I can change things or do things a little bit differently so that I can be the most effective in my role. So it, it's really helped me, I think, just within my own leadership and my own law firm in mm-hmm. many respects. Is that the path that you are hoping to take in the, in the bar? In terms of just continue with my practice in my firm and things like that? And leadership. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I you know, we were talking about this just a little bit ago. I mean, I think that my leadership journey has sort of just begun. It's we're really in the early stages. I've only been practicing for about 10 years. So I really hope that things expand from here. But this is really kind of where it's just begun. I mean, I'm really, really happy with where I'm at in my professional practice. I have a busy 
interesting practice, a great group of folks that I'm working with on a daily basis. But, you know, I'd love to get even more involved in the bar. You know, I'm on the executive council for the family law section. Um, and this will be my third year starting back up here in a couple weeks. Um, I'm the the co-editor of the Colorado's uh, Colorado Lawyers section on family law. So oh, awesome. Yeah. So that's fun too, getting to read, you know, some various articles and things like that that folks are putting together. It's it's fun. I learn a lot from it. And so, you know, I, I'm getting involved, but I certainly want to be more involved. And I don't know necessarily what that looks like. Does that look like potentially an officer position on executive council or does that expand to maybe helping to create another diversity bar for folks that maybe can't check the same box as everyone mm-hmm. else like me because there there isn't you know there isn't a middle eastern bar association there's mm-hmm. several other groups that are fairly close at least in in geographic vicinity mm-hmm. um to where i would identify with culturally but we don't have anything that's really spot on and mm-hmm. so there's some areas like that that are lacking, and I think there's room for growth. Your part, your partner told me before this interview that one of the things she wished she could do is bottle your energy. <laughs> That's nice. So <laughs> I, I'd like to know what, if you have any kind of a self-care or mindfulness um, practice that you do for yourself to continue with that energy. I do, and I, I really, really d- take this seriously in terms of my own self-care because I've seen so many other attorneys, especially family law attorneys, burn out um, mm-hmm. because it's so hard. I mean, I think all three of us here know that very well and how hard this practice area can be. So, you know, I always, I, one of my favorite things to do is to go to group exercise classes. Now that's changed a little bit with, with the mm-hmm. pandemic, but I have various memberships of different types of group fitness classes, and I always make sure that that goes on my calendar, and that's what I'm doing, and no one's going to get in the way of that. Or whether it's I'm, you know, getting a massage, or I am taking some time off, and I'm spending it with my husband or my daughter, who's just turned three. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are really important things, and we can get so carried away in this practice. I mean, I have a really busy practice. I could continue to work and build till the end of time. But, you know, I really try to make an effort to do that. The other thing that we do, which is kind of silly and a kind of unique hobby, is um, I love to wake surf. I don't know if you guys know what that is. Cool. Yeah. So um, we have a boat, and it's kind of like wakeboarding, but you're closer to the back of the boat, and there's a big surf uh, wave, and then you're going like 7 to 10 miles an hour, and you can surf behind the boat without a rope. And so it's a lot of fun, Ah. and we do that a lot in the summer. Now, Colorado doesn't have as much water as we would like, but there's a couple of lakes that we go to, and there's um, one that has a private membership. So I try to make time for that in the summer, too. So if it's a matter of, you know, blocking out a day to do that and try to reset, um, that's, you know, kind of the kinds of things I do. And I find if you block it on your calendar, you can make it happen. Yeah. Um, is that a, is that your message to other lawyers? Yeah, do it. I mean, if you want to go to that class at 5 o'clock, put it on your calendar, because if mm-hmm. not... Your clients schedule over yeah, it. You'll schedule over it, and and our clients don't care. Yeah, they will take they will take every opportunity, take every little bit of time that we have available, and you know I actually learned that it was really abundantly clear to me um, this summer because you know I've always valued my family. I'm really close with my parents, my brother, and then obviously my husband, my daughter, and now I have my own family. But um, in May this summer, my mom got really sick. Um, and she was perfectly healthy and, um, she spent a couple weeks in the ICU totally out of the blue. And that just really rattled me to my core. I mean, I just 
woke up one day and, oh my gosh, you know, like my mom, you know, may not make it. And I'm spending the next couple of weeks in the ICU with her. So that was really, really eye-opening to me. And, you know, I hate that that sometimes things like that have mm-hmm. to happen to really open your eyes. Even when I'm trying to make, you know, a, a concerted effort to block out time. But I think that experience really opened my eyes up even more. What what made you stay with your firm and how did you rise to where you are now? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I've, I've always really enjoyed family law. And so I've stuck with that, you know, throughout my practice. It wasn't like I had a desire to do, you know, immigration or something different. So that was easy. But I think the culture at my firm has always been one where it's it's super collegial and I I always could have an open door to ask questions to. I mean, especially in this practice area, there's always some interesting nuance or something different. I, I truly still feel like almost every day I still learn something new and maybe that'll continue, but there's always some weird, you know, set of facts or something, something like that. And you learn something new, but I could always go to anybody at the firm and bounce ideas off of them and, you know, never feel like it was a silly question and have the time and opportunity to do that. Whereas a lot of other firms, there's those opportunities aren't there. And so I really felt like I could grow. I could then, as you know, more experience I got, the more autonomy I got to take on some, you know, more complicated cases and some more challenging cases. And those then became my cases. And so I think I really then start building a good referral base of clients. And, and it really just felt like my own. And I had this ownership interest in it. And I've always really loved the business side of practicing law too, in terms of running a law firm. Mm. And so I started off as a, as a non-equity partner and it was nice. It was kind of like, you know, training wheels of, of getting some, some managerial responsibilities and duties, but it wasn't, it wasn't totally my baby yet. So it was nice. I had this kind of two tier level of partnership and I learned, you know, I learned a lot. I mean, I've learned to hire people. I've learned to fire people. There's a lot that goes into it. And I think that, I've had great mentors at my firm and a lot of great support. And that's what's helped me, you know, move up probably a little quicker than I imagined I would. Hmm. And do you feel like there's any quality in you that makes you a particularly good lawyer or a good member of your particular firm? Yeah, I mean, I think I... I, especially in family law, you know, folks have a crisis or an emergency, you know, rather, rather quickly, rather frequently. Mm-hmm. I think... You know, what I can do for folks is try to help them determine what's really an emergency, what's not an emergency. And I tend to be quite responsive in terms of getting back to people and, you know, trying to figure out, okay, well, you know, does this really need my immediate attention now? Or what can we do to resolve this to to get them by? And then or, you know, is this something that really is an emergency that we need to jump on? You know, so often, at least on my cases, I sometimes have opposing counsel that may find every single issue in our case is an emergency. And that's really not usually the case. And so I feel like after some years of experience, I can parse out really what's what's critical, what's not, what can be prioritized. And really just having that ability to prioritize, I think, helps. Do you feel that the legal community has generally been pretty accepting of you as a person? Totally. I mean, but for that experience in law school, I think I felt very welcomed and encouraged um, and given lots of different opportunities. So beyond that instance I talked about, I think everything's been been very good and I've been happy with that. So 
obviously you are now a named partner of your firm and that's amazing. Um, and you talked about your family a bit. So what's next for you? It's interesting. Um, I was, I was giving this some thought just as I was getting ready for this of what's next. I mean, I'm fortunate in that I'm really happy in the position that I'm in um, and, and fortunate and love the firm that I'm I'm in. But, you know, I, I think I really would like to be more involved in, in the bar and getting, you know, some type of initiative or um, some type of expansion to the bar for folks that are, you know, quote, semi-diverse as we're talking mm. about. You know, that's kind of what we're, those couple instances I had where, you know, I, I, I couldn't check the box and yeah, sort of you fit this, but not really. There's got to be other folks that feel the same way. And there's mm-hmm. got to be other folks that, that don't necessarily fit into maybe one of the other specialty bar associations. And so I think the more that we can expand those types of opportunities, the more that, um, you know, members of the bar can feel included. And so I think that would be a nice thing to do. Now, how do I actually implement that? I have no idea, but I'll I'll give that some thought. Yeah. I mean, I I have ideas um, how I implement or execute them are a different story, but you know, at least it's, I have an idea. So, Mm -hmm. and then, um, Again, I just I really want to make sure I'm creating this balance for myself so that I'm not the attorney that burns out a couple of years from now. I think that's just so important, um, especially because we see that so often, especially in our practice area. So I want to continue practicing and having this busy, wonderful practice. But I want to make, you know, make more time for my family and make mm-hmm. more time to take care of myself because I mean, it's silly, but what good am I to to my child if I'm, you know, not taking care of myself? So, well, that sounds amazing, and I'm really excited to see the new bar association that you create. Well, stay tuned. <laughs> I don't know how quickly that'll come to fruition, but stay tuned. Depends how many people listen to our podcast. Exactly. exactly. You'll have allies when the time comes. I appreciate that. Thanks so much for being with us today, Holly. Thanks it's for been great. Me. Thank you. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Maureen Watson, Nicole Sparaza, Sue Mealy, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McCarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producers and editors are Courtney Holm and Nicole Sparaza with introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Our Voices.